have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to the Old Testament. We are in the Minor Prophets. We're in the book of Jonah. And last weekend, we, uh, we wrapped up kind of the story proper in uh, the sixth message. We, we made our way all the way through, and I told you, we're going to take three weeks and go back, and we're going to kind of rethink Jonah around three uh, major topics. And today, we're going to talk about the topic of God's Word and uh, trusting God and His Word and His goodness. And, and uh, so I was, I was thinking this week, and I don't know, I had a lot of people come up after the services this morning and say, yeah, you know, I kind of had that situation in my life. When I was in uh, high school, I became a, a Christian when I was a, a freshman in high school. And uh, my freshman, junior, uh, freshman, sophomore, and junior year was all about uh, tennis and uh, band and church. That was like my whole life. And, oh, school. And school. And um, so those, those things took up uh, most of my time. And that's all that I did. And I, I mean, I had friends who were dating and stuff like that, but I just didn't do any of that. And, uh, and then the summer between my junior and senior year, I began going to a different youth group. I just had a connection there, and I began going there and leading worship. And it was a big youth group. It was in a big church. And, um, and it had a completely different culture, one that I had not uh, been a part of before. And part of that culture was everybody was dating in that youth group. I don't know if for some of you, maybe that was your experience, but everybody was dating, and I wasn't dating, and so suddenly I was dating. And, and what I discovered was in that youth group, you were either dating or just stop dating and you were looking to start dating again. Like it was just, it, that's what you did. And, and if you weren't dating, it, there was something wrong with you if you weren't dating for long. And so it was this, it kind of got to be this thing and it was just this cultural thing. And uh, as a senior in high school, uh, college, kind of same thing. And I ended up going to a uh, Christian college. And there's a reason why they often refer to Christian to, to Bible colleges as bridal colleges because there's a there's a lot of that that goes on there and so I kind of got in there and so jun- uh, freshman year sophomore junior year just dating 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 it was about halfway through my junior year and I I kind of reached this point where um, I realized after years of just kind of treadmill dating, you know, I felt like I, I hadn't gotten anywhere, like nowhere. In fact, what I would tell you is, I, it wasn't just that I felt like it didn't get me anywhere good. It didn't produce anything good in me. It was just producing probably not good things in me. And I was just, I was just trying to figure it out. You know, what does it mean and how, how do you move forward? I was, I was thinking about starting my senior year and then I'd be going away to seminary. And so I'm kind of thinking about some things that you think about in the future and I don't know how I'm going to get from where I was to there. And so uh, I was so desperate uh, that halfway through my junior year that I decided to go to my Greek professor for dating advice. Now let me tell you how desperate I was, right? This is, so um, all these years later, uh, we're, we're friends on Facebook. I am with my, um, with my professor from college who taught Greek. Greek. And um, so to tell you what a nerd this guy is, so he goes on Facebook all the time, and this is the kind of stuff he posts uh, on Facebook. This, this is, so what he does is he diagrams Greek verses, and he gets so excited, he takes a screenshot, and he posts it on Facebook. And he gets like four likes, and they're all from previous Greek students, and we're just doing it because we feel really bad for him. Um, but this is, this is what he does. He is a complete and total a Greek geek. And this is the man that I go to for dating advice. And so, you know, I sit down in his office and 
I tell him what's going on. We had some, we went to the same church, and his kids were in my youth group. And so I'm kind of telling him what's going on. He's just really quiet. And, and finally he says, you know, so how has the whole, you know, dating thing been working for you? I'm like, you know, not that good. And what do you think I should do? And he said, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I think you should do. I think you should, like, not date for a while. Don't, just don't date at all. Pick a, a period of time and say, I'm not going to date at all. And I remember telling him, like, that doesn't make any sense. That is never going to get me where I want to go. To which he said, well, how's it been working for you? You know, and, well, not so good. So he says, here's my, here's my thought. Just don't. Just make a commitment. You won't date for a while. And during that time, you'll spend more time with the Lord and cultivating your relationship and spend time with your friends and just, just don't do that. So I decided that's what I'd do. So I went for three months and I didn't. And then just the way timing coincided, it was right at the end of the school year. Now, at the end of the school year, there was one person on campus that I was really interested in possibly getting to know better. Um, I was very spiritual, and so I, you know, just the way spiritual people, I prayed about it. That's all I did, but I, I'm just joking, but I, uh, so basically I wanted to ask her out, but I made a commitment not to, and then suddenly summer came, and, and she was from Portland, Oregon, and uh, I was living in, in Phoenix during the summer working in a church. So then I, I had to go through a couple of more months and just wait. And then, and then school started again. And then I, I, I ended up asking her out and we eventually got married. And that's Christy, that's my wife. But I tell you that because when I look back at the time, I was kind of in a place where I wanted to move forward. I wanted to advance in my life. But the, but the path to get there felt very unintuitive to me. It, it, it felt illogical. It didn't make sense. It wasn't anything that I would have ever come up with on my own. Thankfully, there was someone else who, who did. We've been making our way through the book of Jonah. Jonah is a man who kind of has this, this issue. You see, sometimes God's good plans for us, they, they're not intuitive to us. They, they don't always feel logical to us. Sometimes God's really good plans for us make no sense to us. In fact, we think they're not good plans at all. And this is Jonah. God has a great plan for Jonah. It makes no sense to Jonah. Let me pray and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for bringing us here tonight. And I pray as I, I always do that you will um, open up our hearts and our minds this evening to hear uh, your word from your spirit and that he would reach down deep inside of us and, and, and speak to us. That we could hear not from man tonight but from, from you. That's what we need and that's why we're here. And we ask you for that now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. And so Jonah has this problem. We're going to talk tonight about uh, trust. And so where we want to start as we think about Jonah is this. It's kind of the beginning of the story that sin, as we see in, in this book and in other books of the Bible, sin is always about distrust. Sin is about not trusting God. So Jonah was a prophet of Israel. And we've kind of unpacked that over the last six weeks part of the northern kingdom. He's a prophet, which means basically he is kind of like a divine mailman. Every now and then the Lord God would speak to him, and his job was to deliver the mail. And so God would say, here's, here's a message, take it to the king, you take it to the king, take it to the leaders, take it to the priests, Levites, take it to the people. And his job was to deliver the mail, not to alter the mail, not to change the mail, not to hold it back, but to deliver it. Now on this one occasion, God gives him a message that he wants Jonah to take fact, the very beginning of the book starts this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, 
Go to Nineveh, that, that great city, that, that large city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish is in the opposite direction of Nineveh, as we talked about. To flee from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He, he paid the fare. He went down into the boat to go with him to Tarshish, away, he thought, he hoped, from the presence of the Lord. And so God gives Jonah some, some mail to deliver. He wants him to take a message to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. As we've talked about Assyria, Nineveh, Israel, these are arch enemies. They hate each other. And during this, this period of Israel's history, they are really living under um, this, the, the, the thumb of the Assyrians who are brutal, who are like a, a terrorist nation. And Israel's concern is that uh, Nineveh is going to grow strong enough, Assyria is going to grow strong enough, probably already are, to crush Israel if they would decide that they'd want to do that. And so, Jonah's response is to go in the opposite direction. Instead of delivering the mail, he goes in the opposite direction. So why did he do that? We've talked a lot about the human reasons why he did it, but I think at the core of it is this, that Jonah doesn't trust God. He just doesn't trust God, which is an odd thing for a prophet. He doesn't trust God's goodness. He's not so sure that God's plans are actually good for him. He doesn't trust God's plan. He, he doesn't believe that God has his best interest or the interest of, of Israel at heart. So we said this, that, that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. That's a pretty strong statement. Part of it's pride. Part of it's pride where we, you know, basically I trust God too little and because I trust my own wisdom too much. When I begin to think that I, I know better than God how to live, better than God what will make me happy in the long run. And the thing is, if you live long enough, this attitude, this whole thing starts to really reveal itself to us. Uh, as, as a pastor over the years, I've had a reoccurring conversation. I, I have it often. Um, a lot of times it begins with maybe I'm, I'm talking to, say, a 25, 26, 27-year-old, and they'll say to me something like, you know, Pastor, um, when I was 15 years old, I, would, I remember like praying and asking God for things and, and begging God for things and scheming to get things and, and really being upset with God when he didn't give me those things. And now that I'm 25 and old and wise, I just, I, I just thank God that he didn't give me the foolish, stupid things I asked for when I was 15. Because if God had given me all of those things, I would have destroyed my life. I would have had no future. But now that I'm 25, I can see as I look back on how foolish I was. And then sometimes I'll have 35-year-olds come in to my office. And they'll say to me, you know, Pastor... Man, I can remember when I was 25, you know. I remember like when I was 25 asking God for things, praying for things, and scheming for things, and, and then God would not give them to me, and I would be so upset with God. We didn't give it to me, but now that I'm 35, I look back, and I, I just thank God that he loved me enough not to give me the stupid, foolish things that I asked for. 
And this one's up to have 45-year-old people in my office, you know? You, you kind of see where we're going with this. And, and oftentimes what happens is I would say, you know, you're right. When you were 15, you weren't that wise. You didn't know it was best for you. The, the thing is, we, we tend to think that wherever we are now, like now we have it figured out. Now that I'm 25, now that I'm 35, now that I'm 45 or, you know, up even more, right? We start to think, but now I have it all figured out. But now I know how all this works. And that, that, that simply is pride, where we forget that we are always dependent on the wisdom and leading of God. I mean, really, this goes all the way back to original sin. We talked about this the very first week of this series. God creates man and woman, puts them in this perfect world. He blesses them. He loves them. Right? He says, hey, you're in this garden. You can eat anything in here. Eat of any, any fruit of, of, of any tree except one. Well, there's one tree in the middle. I don't want you to eat from that. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust that I know what's best for you. So you can be around it and eat stuff around it, but don't eat from that tree. I need you to trust me on this. You know the story, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We pick up the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said, he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, so he's kind of challenging here, did God really say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, which was, which was true. But, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Now, God didn't actually say that, so she's not quite getting right. She's actually adding to the word of God. She's maybe like the first Pharisee, uh, lest you die. But the servant said to her, you will surely not die. And here's why. Here's the rub. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's his point? God's holding out on you. There's something really good for you and God doesn't want to give it to you because if God gives it to you, then you will be like God. The point is this, you can't trust him. You can't trust God. You can't trust that he has your best interest at heart. You can't trust him. In verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was, was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was, it was attractive to look at. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, she wanted this thing that God said she shouldn't have. She took of its fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and, and he ate. Now I could be wrong, but I don't think Adam and Eve were in the garden that day and said, you know, let's just be downright evil. Like, what's the evilest thing that we could do? We know we'll eat from the tree, and we'll ruin our lives and our children's lives and the lives of everyone who comes after us. I don't really think that's what's going on. I think the motivation here is that they're looking at the tree, and the fruit looks good, and they, they desire it, and they're thinking, God doesn't have it right in this issue. We're, you know, God's probably got it mostly right. God's probably got it 90% right, but we're pretty sure on this one, he doesn't he doesn't get it. God's holding out on us. There's something really good for us, and he doesn't want us to have it, and so they decide to take control. This is really what Jonah does. He does the exact same thing. He doesn't really trust God, so he's going to take control. By the way, it's what we do every time we sin. We call God's goodness and sovereignty into question. 
In your notes, I've, I've listed some passages, I call them kind of some of God's surprising, unintuitive, illogical strategies for, for living. And over the years, I've noticed, I'll, I'll have conversations with people sometimes, and we'll talk about different scriptures, and then, and then people will tell me why it doesn't really make sense, and why they don't think it'll work for them. Here's just a few of them. Uh, Matthew 20, 26, it says this, but whoever would be great, so Jesus is talking to his disciples and he said, if any one of you want to be great, which by the way, I would highly recommend, who wouldn't want to be great? Who wouldn't want to leverage their life to be the best that they could possibly be? Yeah, so whoever wants to do that, which we, we recommend, must be your servant, right? So here's what our culture says. Our culture says, but if you decide to put everyone else first, right, then your needs won't get met. And people will take advantage of you, and you'll end up like a doormat. So what does our culture say? Well, you got to put yourself first. Put yourself first, and then you'll be happy, right? So this sounds kind of crazy, that the way to greatness is to be a servant, to go around serving other people. Our culture says that doesn't make sense. How about Matthew 5, 44? Jesus said, but I say to you, here's a good strategy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, the world says that sounds like a terrible strategy, right? To bless your enemies? Here's a better way to do this. Gossip about your enemies. Slander your enemies. Uh, get retribution and revenge, right? The best way to deal with an enemy is a strong offense. That's what you do. That's what our world says. How about Colossians 3.13? Here's some good advice. Bear with one another. That word bear has the idea of persevere. It's like it's hard. It's difficult. These are annoying People in your life, bear with them and forgive each other. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What do we think? Well, if I bear with people in my life who are always sinning against me and saying dumb things and doing dumb things, and be, right, if I do that, they'll never change. Right? They'll just do it again and again. They'll take advantage of me if I just bear with them. And it won't benefit me. And if I forgive people who sin against me, They'll just keep sinning against me, and they won't change. So we think a better way is to kind of, you know, to kind of keep their sin, to hold it against them, to, to remind them of it, of how inferior they are, and how awesome we are, and how they sin and we don't, and to shame them into submission. How about Hebrews 10, 25? Don't forsake our own assembly. He's talking about with other believers. He's talking about the, the local church as is the habit of some, but in, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But a lot of times we read it and we think, yeah, but that's going to take so much time. So I got to go to church on well, Sunday morning in the summer. I got to go to church. And then I got, you know, so I'll probably have to hang out with my neighbors in the afternoon. And then I got to go to grow group and like a Bible study and a prayer meeting. It's going to take all of my time. And I just need some time for me, right? How often do we do that? Like, oh, this is, people are annoying, and I don't want to take more time to be around people. How about 1 Peter 5, 5? Clothe yourselves, all of you, that's every one of us, with humility, with humility toward one another. Set down your pride and be humble. Humble yourselves. Don't wait for someone else to do it. You do it to yourselves. You get up every morning, and you say, today I'm going to be humble. Today I'm going to serve. Today I'm going to put other people first. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, God may exalt you. So get up in the morning and humble yourself and be a servant. Like how many of us wake up in the morning and go, yeah, this is going to be an awesome day. I'm going to be a doormat today. That, that's going to be awesome, right? No, what do we say? If I'm humble, no one will ever appreciate how truly awesome I am. 
No one will know that unless I tell them, you know. And I won't get credit. And I won't get the attention I need. And people will take advantage of me. And this isn't a good plan, God. This isn't in my best interest. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever lets go of his life, Jesus says for me, will find it. What does our world say? Well, no, actually, I find myself by putting me first. It's me first. So I got to go find myself, right? How many ways has this been drilled into us in society? No, first you got to find yourself and then you can help other people. And Jesus says it will never, ever, ever work. It's like the dating treadmill. You're never going to get there. First, lose yourself. Let yourself go to Jesus Christ. Here's a few more because I may not have offended all of you yet. These will. Okay, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, right? These are some very popular verses in our culture today. Put them on a billboard, put them on your car, people are going to love you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands, respect your husbands, honor your husbands. Our culture says, have you met our husbands? <laughs> have you, are you kidding me? This will never, ever work. This is, this is not, not going to work in our culture. Husbands, love your wives. How did Jesus love the church? He sought her. He served her. He died for her. He gave her the remote control. He let her choose where we go to dinner, right? The world says this is ridiculous. The world says this will never, ever work. It's you first. It's me first. Everybody else comes second. Find yourself first. Oh, one more. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this right. Notice how this is the biggest verse I've put on the screen so far. It's huge, you know? So let me tell you a story about this. So I became a Christian in high school I, as a freshman. And um, my, no one else in my family were Christians. Uh, didn't go to church, though my, fam, my, my parents had a little church <clears throat> background growing up. But they didn't, they didn't go to church, not believers. And um, so I became a Christian, and I was, I was like all in to Christianity. So... Uh, I would go to the Baptist church down the street. I would go to Sunday school in the morning, and then I would go to uh, the worship service. And then uh, the church I went to, no one went to church in the morning. I, I don't ever remember going to church and not having somebody say, hey, come over to our house for dinner. Remember that? And so I would go over to the house for dinner, and then I would get together with some friends in the afternoon, and we would study and do homework. And then we'd have an evening service. And then after that, we'd have a youth group service. And I'd be gone all day, and I'd come home. And I remember after doing this for a few months, I remember my mom and dad saying, you know, we're really concerned. We think this whole church thing, this Jesus thing, is completely out of whack, completely taking over your life. And you need to get some perspective. So we're forbidding you to go to church. You're not allowed to go to church, Sunday school, Wednesday night, nothing, none of it. Do not go to church. So I remember thinking, well, my parents have clearly lost their marbles and they have crossed a line and God is very unhappy with them. And so I, I remember going to my youth pastor one day after school and I said, hey, so my, my, my dad said, I'm not allowed to come to church anymore. And obviously I know where you stand at this and you're going to tell me this is time to stand up, take a stand, plant a flag, die on this hill, and I'm going to church and, you know, whatever happens, happens. And my youth pastor looked at me and he said, I better not see you at church next Sunday. <laughs> I said, well, what are you talking about? Obviously, God wants me in church. And he says, well, actually, the Bible is very, very, very clear. Now, I remember saying, but this, will, this, doesn't, this is completely illogical. This will never make me happy not being able to go to church. 
My youth pastor said, well, do you trust God or not? Yeah, but this doesn't make any sense. Well, he said, you're going to have to choose. And so I didn't go to church that Sunday. And I didn't go to youth group that Wednesday night. And I didn't go to church the next Sunday. The next Sunday, I think it was three Sundays later, I'm in my room in the morning. Door opens up. My dad walks in. He says, what are you doing? I said, well, nothing. I'm not allowed to go to church today. He says, yeah, you can go to church. Get up, go to church. Went to church, never an issue again. You see, the issue sometimes is just, it, it doesn't always feel logical to us. We don't always understand what God's doing, right? But we always get to make the choice. Will we trust him? Sin always begins with the character assassination of God and his word. Where we start to think, I don't think God got this one. I don't think he got this one right. I don't think God knows what's best for me. I don't think God has my best interest at heart. Obeying him is not going to get me what I want in life. And so we start to doubt. We doubt God. We doubt his goodness. Is God really good? I'm not sure about that. We question his omniscience. Does God really know everything? Does God really know how this is? Does he really know that my dad's going to change his mind? And after that, actually, oddly enough, my dad demanded I went to church. Like, can you imagine that? Did God really know that? Is God really omnipotent? Is he all-powerful? Does he really have the ability to accomplish the good things he sets out to do? We begin to doubt God's plan, his word. This is Jonah. Jonah doesn't trust God, doesn't trust him, and so Jonah runs. He runs. What should he have done? What should Jonah have done instead? Well, Jonah would have known, for instance, a story that happened years earlier. It was a man named Abraham, father of faith. Jonah would have known about Abraham. Jonah would have taught about Abraham. Remember, Abraham, God had made a promise to him. He told Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to have descendants more numerous than the sand. And then one day in Genesis, this happened. God spoke to Abraham and he said, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah and I want you to offer him up there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. God doesn't give him a reason. God had never before asked for a human sacrifice. It was an abomination to the Lord. But what did Abraham do? He went up to the mountain, right? He refused to act as if he knew what was best. He reminded himself when he was on the trip of who God is and the character of God and what God has done. And of course, from our vantage point, we look at the story years later and say, yeah, well, we knew exactly what God was doing. We know what God was up to, but Abraham didn't. Abraham didn't know how it was going to turn out. He couldn't see it at the time, but he didn't need to. He just needed to trust God. Jonah knew the story of Abraham. He could have followed Abraham's example, but he did not. And of course, the same thing is true for us. We can always choose to trust God, or we can choose to run. But when we run, when we run, it always leads to something. It leads to storms. In the second week of our series, Pastor Gary did a great job of talking about this idea that Jonah sinned. And because of Jonah's sin, there was a storm. In verse 3 of chapter 1 in Jonah, we read this, but, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship that was going to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. And so Jonah is running from God, but God loves Jonah. God has not given up on Jonah, and so God pursues Jonah with a storm. 
And as we said that second week, all sin has a storm attached to it. Every time we choose to not trust God and sin against Him, there is always a storm attached to it. But here's what's interesting about this story. The storm didn't just come upon Jonah. It also came upon all those who were in the boat with him, who had no part in his sin. They just happened to be in the wrong boat with the wrong guy. And that happens to us too, doesn't it? I mean, life is filled with storms. Now, sometimes the storms are storms that we cause through our sin. And sometimes we go through relational storms and health storms and financial storms and vocational storms, and we cause them. It was because of our sin, and God is chasing us. He loves us. But sometimes we just happen to be in the same boat as someone else who caused the storm, right? And so sometimes this happens, and we find ourselves in this. You know, sometimes we're in a storm, we're like, well, I caused this, and I guess I kind of you know, get what I deserve. But sometimes we're in a boat, and we're like, I didn't even do anything. It was that guy, or, 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 or it was her. But either way, here's our point. God can work in these storms even when we didn't cause them. In Romans 8, 28, it, it tells us this, and we know that God causes all things. We can even say all storms to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purposes. Regardless of who caused the storm, God can use storms in our lives. He can use them to correct us. He can use them to, to draw us back to him, to grow us, to teach us to depend on him in ways that we would never have figured out if everything was easy. God can use storms in our life to prevent us from making greater sins in the future, to show us areas of life where we're still proud and don't trust Him, to know that we don't understand it all, we don't see it all, we don't get it all, but that God loves us and God sees what we, we cannot see. I came across in a commentary a, a, a story. It's an old, actually it's an old uh, fairy tale and I wanted to read it to you because I think it makes this point really well. There's an old story about a wicked witch who lived in a remote cottage in the deep forest. And when travelers came through looking for lodging, she would offer them a meal and a bed. It was the most wonderfully comfortable bed any of them had ever slept in. But it was a bed full of dark magic. And if you were asleep in it, when the sun came up, you would turn to stone. And then you would become a figure in the witch's statuary, trapped until the end of time. And this witch forced a young girl to serve her. And though she had no power to resist the witch, the girl had become more and more filled with pity for the victims. Now one day a young man came looking for a bed and board and was taken in. And the servant girl could not bear to see him turned to stone. And so what she did was she threw some sticks and stones and thistles into his bed. And it made the bed horribly uncomfortable. And every time during that night, he felt a new painful object under him. And, and though he would cast out each one, there was always a new one to dig into his flesh. He slept only fitfully, and finally he rose early in the morning feeling weary and worn long before dawn. And as he walked out the front door, the servant girl met him, and he berated her, yelling loudly, How could you give a traveler such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? And as he left, she said under her breath, Ah, the misery you know now is nothing like the infinitely greater misery a comfortable sleep would have brought you. Those were my sticks and stones of love. And God puts sticks and stones of love in our beds to wake us up, to bring us to rely on Him, lest we face a more terrible and permanent fate. And this is Jonah. He ran from God, but God pursued him. It was Jonah's sin that caused the storm, 
the sticks and the stones. It was Jonah who was thrown overboard. But God's love appointed a fish to rescue Jonah. On the surface, it probably looked bad. For the men who were in the boat, seeing Jonah thrown over, it looked like a bad situation. Seeing a fish come up and swallow him probably looked bad. But even this storm is a vivid picture of Romans 8.28 in action. For those who love God, God works everything, every storm for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Which brings us to the last point this evening. And this is, is very simple. And that is that when it comes to our lives and it comes to trust, it is Jesus who deserves our trust. Now, of course, we're living many, many years after Jonah. And so where he was looking forward one day to a Savior whose life he could not understand in advance, whose name he would not know, we can look back on the Savior. We know his name. We know his story. We know how it all played out. And there's some really fascinating parallels between Jonah and Jesus. We talked the first week uh, about the parallel, for instance, between uh, Jonah and the prodigal son. And we'll talk about that again in a few weeks. But there's actually a story in Mark chapter 4 that has some amazing parallels between Jonah and Jesus. Now again, let's think about Jonah. Jonah, in this story, is on a boat on the sea. He is in the boat. He falls asleep. A storm comes up. The sailors wake him up. They discuss with him the dire situation. Jonah finally says, throw me into the sea and the storm will stop. They do. It does. And the sailors, it says, are filled with great fear for the Lord when the story is over. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story in chapter 4 that goes like this. Now, on that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across the lake to the other side. It's a crazy time of ministry, and they just want to get a little time alone. And so leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling with water. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him up. And they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing here, that we are drowning? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. So think about the similarities here. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat on the water. Both boats are overtaken by storms. And both storms are described as unusually violent. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep, surprisingly enough, in the midst of a terrible storm. They are sleeping, both of them. The others in the boat freak out, wake them up, have a discussion, to decide what can be done about it. I love it, the way they talk to Jesus in, in verse 38. It says, and they woke him and they said, do you not care that we are perishing here, that we are drowning here? You know, this is a guy who walks on the water, so I don't know what they're thinking. If the boat goes down, even if Jesus is asleep, he'll just float on the water, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna drown. And they, they just accuse him. They say, Jesus, it's like you don't even care about us here. In both stories, God intervenes. In both stories, the sea is calmed. After the storm, the sailors and the disciples are more in awe of God than they were before the storm. Jonah was willing to sacrifice himself for the sailors. And it only made sense because, after all, he's the, 
He was the one who caused the storm. It was his fault in the first place. And so he's thrown overboard and the, the storm stops. Jesus, however, offered his disciples something infinitely greater, not just the calming of a storm on a sea. You see, the gospel is this, that not only did Jesus calm the physical storm, but he went on to the cross where he faced the ultimate storm, where he faced the wrath of God for our sin. And that because of our sin, he was willing to take upon himself every sin, all our guilt, all our shame, where the wrath of God was poured over him for that sin, wave upon wave, and he paid with his life for our sin. So we could be saved from the ultimate storm. We could be saved from sin, and we could be saved from death. In fact, Jesus is talking about this in Matthew. He says this, For just as Jonah was, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says that he will die, that he will be buried, but that he will rise from the dead. And in doing so, he will conquer sin, and he will conquer death. And on the cross, God came to us, and he substituted himself for us. Unlike Jonah, who, who deserved the storm, Christ had done nothing to cause this storm against him. It was us, and he took that storm upon himself. John Stott, in his commentary on Jonah, says this, and I just want to print this out because this is so, it's so good, the point he makes. He says, the biblical gospel of atonement, that is, how God atoned for our sin, is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. So follow us here. This is, this is awesome what he says. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Right? That's what we do every time we sin. We take the role of God in our life. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That is in the throne of life. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. So let me ask you this. When you consider the life of Christ, when you consider the cross, when you consider the storm that Jesus took on, when you consider what he did for you, does Jesus seem like someone that you could trust. Even when he says to do things like love your enemies and pray for them, even when he says to let go of your life and to follow him and to pick up your cross, even when he says to serve others and to put their interests first, does that sound like someone, does he look like someone that you could trust even in stuff like that? When you think about everything that he's done for you, when you think about how he saved you, how he pursued you, how he forgives you, how he blesses you, how he provides for you, does he seem to you like someone that you could trust? Even when his advice, it sounds kind of crazy, like don't date for a couple of months. Does he have your best interest at heart, do you think? Do you think he loves you? Do you think he's sovereign and, and able to deliver the good things that he promises to us? Let me just close with this. Where do you need to trust Christ today? And then maybe you came in here tonight and you've never trusted him with your life. You never trusted him with your sin. 
You've never placed your faith in him. Your eternity. The good news is it's actually quite easy to do, relatively speaking. You just trust him. There's no ritual. There's no right. There's no perfect way to say it. You just trust him. You just say, I trust you, Jesus. Scripture says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I want to pray for us in a minute. I'll give you a chance to do that. But maybe you came in here tonight saved and redeemed and all that good stuff. But there's some place in your life where you've been running from God. Maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe it's a sin thing that God's called you to forsake and you haven't done it. Maybe it's someone you need to forgive, something at work, someone that you need to practice humility towards and serve. I I don't know what it is, but you probably do. What is it tonight that instead of running away from God, you need to turn around, that's literally what the word repent means, and to trust him, to trust him with that thing. I'm going to pray for us and, and we'll close.